And greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS Medical Expo Can 88.1 and 92.3 FM. This is our hour. I'm your host, Mike Malsam. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, you've connected with uh, our guests this week. Who do we have here? Yeah, we have Matt McCormick. Thanks for coming, Matt. Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> uh, the reason, and we got him here, and Mike asked me as we were talking before the show, he said, so how do you two know each other? And we don't. Uh, at all. In fact, <laughs> what happened is I saw that he had a short film showing at the Spiff, and I saw that he was local in oh, Spokane International Film Festival, which starts tomorrow night. Uh, and I saw that he was local, and I thought I'll just reach out and see if he wants to be on the show. And he uh, kindly agreed. So thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, what I'm interested to know, kind of right off the bat, is uh, what what um, tell us a little bit about the film that is going to be shown tomorrow night at the Spiff. Okay, it's a short documentary. It's called The Deepest Hole. As the name suggests, it is a documentary about the deepest hole. <laughs> um, during the space race, or excuse me, during the Cold War, uh, we, you know, we're all familiar with the space race and the arms race and all the other kind of uh, contests that uh, took place between the United States and Soviet Union. One of the lesser known contests, though, was the two countries vie to see who could dig the deepest hole. Uh, the United States actually started, had this idea of digging down 10 miles uh, through the crust uh, and reaching down into the mantle, which is kind of the next layer down. Um, they had no real clearly defined goals beyond that. They didn't know what they were going to find. They were just kind of like, well, let's just do it and see what happens. Soviets caught wind of this. Next thing you know, they too are trying to drill down <laughs> to the mantle. So we, we have this little kind of uh, uh, the uh, Earth Sciences race, as it was dubbed, uh, one of the lesser publicized of the of the great races between the two <laughs> countries. Um, so the documentary starts out kind of exploring that, but I think what's actually the more interesting part of it is is that story um, also then kind of laid the was the seeds we'll say of a, of a, an urban legend that um kind of went viral in the late 80s early 90s and that is this idea that uh the soviets while drilling this massively deep hole hit some kind of uh, unexpected pocket some cavity <laughs> that was uh also very hot it was melting all their equipment they were very confused about what was going on um as they're pulling out their equipment, they could also hear some strange sounds coming from the hole. So they just happened to have some heat-resistant microphones lying around, lowered those microphones down into this hole, which was now you know eight or nine miles deep, and were able to hear and record the sounds of millions of people screaming in agony. <laughs> so clearly they discovered hell in this process. Um, and this was a story, you know, it made its way around. It was first actually broadcast by the, uh, you know, where it actually started is, is unclear, but it, its first kind of prime time uh, uh, broadcast came from uh, the Trinity Broadcast Network, which is the kind of world's largest Christian faith-based uh, broadcaster. They have a show. That, I mean, they're still in operation. Um, they were the first to kind of report this as a, a news event, um, from there, it just it went all over the place. It was uh, it was uh, being talked about in churches and, and radio program, uh, church radio programs, stuff like that, all over. Um, there was an actual uh, thirty second recording that was was the sound, right? The, the sound is being played, and this was all happening during the earliest days of the internet. 
And so looking at it through kind of a you know, 2020 lens, um, we can actually see that it was one of the first examples of fake news going viral mm-hmm. on the Internet. Um, so a lot of weird things going on there. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't clear because I watched the movie last night. And what were they trying to find by digging this deepest hole? Well, that's the thing. They really didn't know. Um, I think it was one of those things. That was a great time for science, actually. So, you know, some obscure geologist who really had this hankering to figure out what's down there, you know, could probably figure out how to get the money to do something like that. They didn't know. Um, It was really just because of the Cold War and in both countries being so frightened of the other country getting ahead of them in science that, you know, if if one was doing something, the other one wanted to make sure they were doing it as well and and hopefully doing it better. You know, who knows what they're going to find down there? Chances are nothing. But what if... You know, somehow we tap into some amazing energy source or discover, you know, who knows what. Um, well, and as you're talking about that, I, I mean, it's fake news, but the holes weren't fake news. They were really digging the holes. Oh, no, right? you're right. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. The, what was going the, 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 the This race to dig down to the mantle, which is about 10 miles deep, that was very real. Um, neither country succeeded. Uh, in fact, the United States, we only got 600 feet down before the whole <laughs> what project. What was the problem? Well, we started, our, our problem was uh, we decided to try to uh, drill the hole um, using offshore drilling. Because if you, if you start in the ocean, then you don't have as much to dig through. The, the, the crust is much thinner uh, at the ocean floor than it is on land. So I said, well, we can, you know, save a couple miles of digging if we do this offshore drill. Um, but this was in the 1960s, early 1960s, and, and that technology just didn't really exist yet. Um, I mean, it was being figured out. Much of, you know, if anything, that's probably the most productive um, information that was found in this process, for the United States anyway. So it was, you know, having all this government money st- piled on this project to try to figure out how to drill off the coast of uh, Southern California. Um, but yeah, they didn't really, they, they didn't, they didn't find much. So, so, you know, we got about 600 feet down before, like it just took years and it was just, you know, money pit, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russians, however, they started drilling uh, on the Kola Peninsula, which is the Kola Peninsula. That, that's actually uh, pretty far west for Russia. That's where, uh, very close to us. Uh, Sweden and Norway, that, that's the Kola Peninsula. So there's a sliver of that that is, is uh, Russian territory. And so they were drilling up there on land. So they had further to dig, but they didn't have to deal with storms and waves and tides and this and that. They started digging just uh, a couple years after we started, but they continued to dig for decades. It really wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union when they stopped. And it was, it was just because of money. They were just like, you know, we, we, we've been piling tons of money on this. It's not bringing much back to us. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, they were just, uh, as a country, pretty much bankrupt. So at that point, to justify the funds it took to, to keep that thing going was just was just not mm-hmm. happening. But, but they did. They beat us. Uh, they got about eight miles deep, a little bit more than eight miles Whereas, you know, so our 601 feet to their 
eight and a half miles. They 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 clearly won <laughs> that aspect of the of the Cold War, which I think is what they call a pyrrhic victory. You know, you've gotten eight miles down <laughs> and poured all this money into it, but then you say, what did we accomplish by digging eight yeah. miles down? Well, and one of the the sad, or I don't know, sad, but one of the kind of ironic things that is now the, the site where this all happened is just a industrial ruin. Yeah, you um, showed pictures of that in the yeah. documentary. Were those pictures you took? Or? No, I didn't. I did not travel to Russia. I, I, I would have loved to, but um, the fact is, is uh, traveling, uh, working in Russia is very difficult to begin with. Working in like a ridiculously remote region, even more so. And ultimately, I knew there, there was already fantastic documentation of this that I was able to access. So I was like, you know what, I'm sure. going to just use this yeah. stuff. And you showed the photograph of that bolted cap on yeah. top of the hole. <laughs> it was hard to tell from scale how big that was, but it didn't yeah. look very oh, wide. Oh, it's not that wide. No, the hole, the, the hole itself, I think, is only 11 inches in diameter. So, you know, eight mile, eight and a half miles long, eight, 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 or no, excuse me, eight and a half miles long and 11 inches wide. I can imagine basically. for a career... What did you do? Well, I spent a decade or so watching <laughs> this drill yeah, dig no, this exactly. hole. Yeah, <laughs> because that's what it was. I mean, it, it, it was, it's so remote. It's so Jeez. remote. And, it's, you know, it is up. It's, it's, it's north of the Arctic Circle. So you know that it was cold. It was barren. There were no trees oh, around. I mean, it is, it is literally in the middle of nowhere. And so I'm sure that, you know, being assigned to work up at the Cola Super Deep Borehole was not a job too many people were excited about. And yeah, that's all they were doing was they were just, just very repetitive, nothing really happening, just just digging out mm. cores from this hole. No no light during the winter. Mm. It's up there to the Arctic Circle. Oh my yeah. God, I can't think yeah. of it. So a couple of questions. How did you come across this story first? And then how did you decide this was going to make a good documentary short? Um, I... I bumped into the information a while ago while working on another project. So the last film I completed was a feature-length documentary called Buzz 1-4. It actually showed at the Magic Lantern, which is like right beneath us, mm -hmm. just uh, mm -hmm. not too long ago. That's a film I collect. I completed in 2017, and it's a it's about a um, so another wild thing going on during the Cold War is we had this this program called Operation Chrome Dome. If you've seen the movie uh, Dr. Strangelove, th this references it. So mm -hmm. there was a period in time, actually it was eight years, where we, every moment of the day, had at least 12 B-52 bombers. These are these big, giant Air Force bombers loaded up with nuclear bombs flying towards Russian targets. And what would happen is the, the plane would take off from an American base. It would fly you know, some 12, 14 hours towards Russia. And it, as it approached Russian airspace, it would get a, a signal, you know, from the Pentagon essentially that was saying like either yes, attack or no, come home. And then at that point, they'd turn around and fly back. And as they were turning around to fly back, 30 minutes behind them was another one doing the exact same mm -hmm. thing. So we constantly had this barrage of these planes flying straight towards Russia, ready to, to nuke them at any, at any moment. This, this never stopped. This 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on and on and on. These missions for the, 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 that took, it was like a 28-hour mission. So these crews you know, got up, flew there, flew back, and, and awful, right? Um, and they were loaded oftentimes with at least two thermonuclear bombs. One day, one of these missions, a, a, a B-50 was returning from one of these flights, 
was very close to its home base in Albany, Georgia. It was coming down the eastern seaboard, just not far from Washington, D.C. Big winter storm hits. The tail of the airplane snaps off. The flight, the plane, <laughs> you know, obviously spins out of control from 30,000 feet high, slams down in the side of a mountain not more than 90 miles from Washington, D.C. Thankfully, the two nuclear bombs did not explode. Um, we would have heard about that, right? That might have made the news. Yeah. <laughs> that would have made the news. This, this, was, uh, this was 1964. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and how the East Coast would look, it, it would be a much whole different different thing going on over there right now. Um, but, yeah, so it was one of these. It was a, didn't get a whole lot of press. wasn't something that was uh, really known about. It was a story that I have known about my whole life, though, because my grandfather was the pilot of that plane. Oh, oh my gosh. My so they all gosh. got out safely, huh? Well, the, you got to watch the film and find <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. um, but but so, so during that film, so that was a feature-length film. Right? I, I spent years working on it. Um, it's actually you, it's on uh, Amazon acquired it. So if you oh. if you have Amazon Prime, what, you it's can, Buzz Buzz One Four Buzz is one the four. name of the film. Okay. Um, but anyway, so during that film, I went on a deep, long Cold War research uh, uh, expedition, right? And th- what a wild, fascinating time! You know, I, I I lived through a little bit of it. I mean, I was born in in 1972, so I kind of grew up with the fear of. You know, how long are we all going to have here? Um, so I had a little bit of a personal connection to it. But but as I even dug deeper and deeper and, and looked at the stuff that kind of predates my own memory, it just was fascinating, you know, fascinating. So it was during that research that I also bumped into the, the, this, the story of the, of, of the, of the hole, of the, the holes and, and the, the, the race to dig the deepest hole. And so I kind of, you know, quickly I was like, oh, there's, there's something there, to, there, there's a little project there to be made. So kind of put that on the back burners, waited until I got Buzz 1-4 finished, and then, and then was able. Wow. That was also right when I, I, had, I had just got that all done. I had just started working on The Deepest Hole right before I got hired at Gonzaga and moved here. So that kind of slowed it down. This film probably would have been done a year ago mm. had it not been for this big shift lately so are there yeah. any other stories that you got during your research that you kind of still have on the back burner oh the to next one is about? yeah no my next project is also in the same vein it's um another wild thing is that um the cia was covertly supporting the arts in the united states especially modern art um part of again you know the cold war we're always Trying to one up each other, right? <laughs> and and one thing that the, the, the United States intelligence was was very aware of was that we were really losing the kind of bohemian intellectual movement, mm-hmm. right? You know, everyone looked at so Europe and other countries, and like that's where the great art and literature and poetry, you know, where the United States we were just kind of, you know, not as artistically inclined, right? We were more just folksy and and making kind of our more, you know, country and Western style stuff. And so the CIA realized like, hey, we're, we're losing this part of this larger battle. And if, if we hope to continue to, you know, to, to, to have any kind of sway with, you know, intellectuals, bohemian types, um, we need to make United States look 
more you know look fancier basically we need to be more more complicated and and need to be more sophisticated with our tastes and our art and whatnot so um the cia is very covertly supported u.s artists not not none of them knew it right they they Mm. created the kind of uh, fake organizations fake institutions fake art collectors who simply bought a lot of art, donated a lot of money to places <laughs> like the Museum of Modern Art, and really propped them up so that on a worldwide level, we could point to American artists and American institutions and say, our artists are as good as your artists, essentially. Right. Well, <laughs> and and since you've already done that research, I mean, maybe, spoiler alert, maybe you're going to watch us make, uh, make us watch this film as well. <laughs> but did it work? Well, that's debatable, you know. I mean, just as far as what they invested in, was that, was that, did they invest in some of the more successful artists and people that we still heard about? That, that's, that's the interesting thing here. And this is where, you know, this is a film that I've, you know, done some little research on, but I haven't really dug in. But, but I think that ultimately becomes the question is, you know, how we oftentimes quantify success is very much wrapped up in these things. You know, a, a successful artist is an artist who has collectors buying their work, has their work being displayed in art museums. But then if you suddenly, you know, realize like, oh, that person who is collecting your wow. art really exactly. wasn't mm-hmm. actually a person interested in collecting your art, you know, it becomes more of a charade. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> now, that said, I'm also someone who loves, I love abstract expressionism. I love the kind of art that was, you know, popular and going through this. So, so I have kind of a, 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 a I'm, I'm coming into this with a couple different um, viewpoints. Because, sure. like, when I go to the New York, I mean, I'd much rather spend a day at the Museum of Modern Art than the Met. Um, that's just my personal styles. I'm more interested in modern stuff and contemporary stuff. But then it's also interesting to think, like, wow, maybe because the, the whole reason I even knew of some of these artists might be because of the amount of publicity they got that was in some ways propped up by the CIA. That is amazing. (laughs) That is crazy. That is incredible. I mean, this whole race thing actually almost borderlines an amazing (coughs) comedy. I mean, can you imagine Sputnik is we dug the deepest hole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you think about that, and there's some absurdity to the whole thing. It's a it's a it's a circus of of absurdity. (laughs) The Cold War. That's why I I probably could the rest of my filmmaking career could be based on 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 that. Well, and it seems like there's a level of absurdity you're looking for in some of your other films because I watched a clip of um, the the short film you made about the subconscious uh, subconscious art of graffiti removal. Yes. Is that was that the That's, title that of it? That is the title. Yes. Okay. And I kept reading and it said that you were kind of tongue in cheek and you were mocking it, but I also felt that there was you were kind of getting it both ways that you also were seeing some of the yeah. beauty in the way that they were painting over this graffiti. I mean, is that the case? Absolutely. No, that, and that's kind of my, that's my shtick, right? As a filmmaker <laughs> is, um, looking for those kind of metaphors and those ironies, but then at the same time, also recognizing that there is, you know, multiple ways to access an idea and, and to, to ultimately walk away and, and think about these ideas. Um, for that film, again, and this perfectly ties into abstract expressionism, right? 
So 20-some years ago, a friend of mine, Avalon Kalen, who actually lives here in Portland now. Um, we lives were, here in Spokane? Uh, excuse me. Or? Yeah, oh, okay. he's a friend of mine from Portland. <laughs> he, he moved to Spokane a couple okay. of years before I did. And um, we were hanging out in Portland, and, and, and we drove by this, this wall that was by both our houses, and it was covered with these different blocks of, of paint, different colors, squares, and different shapes and not. And he points to it and goes, hey, that's some really good subconscious art there. And we start talking about it, and it's just it's this wonderful, started into this, con- this conversation that then became this kind of running joke slash <laughs> art appreciation movement, right? Where, you know, we're looking at the stuff and talking about it and, you know, realizing, you know, pretty quickly, you know, as soon as he said that, I was like, wow, there's a million metaphors here, right? Because <laughs> we can look at, you know, so the, the process is someone goes and tags the building and then the city or someone else goes and, you know, wants to hide that graffiti, wants to hide that tag somehow. So they paint like a square, a rectangle, something over, over that. You know, oftentimes that is maybe not exactly the same color the wall was previously. So now instead of this blank wall or a wall with a piece of graffiti on it, you now have this wall with this rectangle painted on it. And there are some, you know, you cannot deny its, um, the, the visual characteristics of it and how similar it is to a lot of contemporary art, especially stuff of the abstract expressionist movement, you know, it's like Mark Rothko. Um, and so like, like you can look at it and be like, okay, actually that does look pretty interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We, we, we would look at these and be like, okay, this is a joke, but it's also not a joke. Like, mm-hmm. like we can sit here and have a very interesting aesthetic conversation about this stuff. I'm thinking <clears throat> once that gets out uh, in Russia, the KGB <laughs> is going to be supporting this underground <laughs> group of artists that are going to go paint over uh, the graffiti in Moscow. It's possible. It's, it's quite possible. Well, it's quite and, possible. I, and I could tell you were having a lot of fun with it, where you were categorizing the different type. You know, you had the symmetry, and then you yeah. had the, uh, what you call it, yeah. ghosting? Ghost, or yeah. and the, so for, for all that, you know, and again, back to the Museum of Modern Art, right? I, they, they had just had a big retrospective of, uh, of abstract expressionism. And I got a hold of the catalog for that show, and I really almost verbatim ripped the the essay that associated <laughs> that was in that. Except that every time I would just replace graffiti removal with. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, because that's what it you know because because there's just so many different directions you can you can you can enter this conversation right because because first there's the the very real like hey let's just look at this and consider it as an aesthetic object. But as soon as you do that, then it forces us to ask deeper questions like, well, why is a Mark Rothko painting hanging on the walls of a museum while this here is like kind of considered an eyesore and a problem, right? So there's an interesting sort of dilemma. Um, also just ideas of like who gets to control this this visual landscape, right? So somehow like someone, a graffiti artist spray painting on the wall, that's a problem, and then painting a rectangle, a gray rectangle over it is a solution. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, who gets to, you know, so, so who gets to decide what's art and what's not? Who gets to decide what is okay and to, to see on a daily basis and what isn't? I mean, there's a lot of um, power structures at play here. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, that's what the film is, is 
while it is a sort of tongue-in-cheek making this fake argument that this is because because in the film it's like that's the argument going back to you know my, my this this early conversation with Avalon was that the city was actually intentionally or or subconsciously planning art in the world <laughs> for us to see right it was like like the, we just want as human beings we're we're naturally inclined to make art and that's what this is we're seeing the remnants of of this uh, subconscious expression mm-hmm. that's um, great yeah but but you know from there then it's like hey we can read this in so many different ways it can be a critique on power structure it could be a a plea to simply use your eyes and open them and look around you and and think for yourself what is interesting and maybe beautiful and what isn't and you know I, that, that's really what it is it's more just a plea to encourage people to kind of form their own ideas of what they think is a, a visually interesting landscape. And there was even a fade between a Rothko and something on, on a wall. And oh, it was really it's, it's, uncanny it's, it's, how it's, similar yeah, it was. Exactly, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you do have to kind of wonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're listening yeah. to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine. That's at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word, Give KYRS to 44321. Well, I was talking to you during the break here, and uh, you're mentioning that, uh, well, actually, I was mentioning that to you that the reason I actually heard about you at all was that you had your film shown at Sundance, and then during the break, this is your fourth time at Sundance. Well, first yeah. of all, congratulations. Thank That's got to be yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah uh, it's, it's wonderful. So, uh, I mean, what I'd like to hear basically about any experiences you've had there, but uh, maybe the first time versus the last time. Yeah. It'd be kind of interesting well, talking per, about I mean, the, the first film I had there was the subconscious how to graffiti removal. Oh, okay. And that was in 2002. So um, since then, you know, 18, over this 18-year span, this is now the fourth time I've been there with a the film. Um, so the most recent, you know, this happens every year in January. So this is really just a month ago, actually, that I was there. Um, yeah, Sundance is a fantastic festival you know, it really is this kind of special cultural thing going on I mean, maybe the cia backs it I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one where like 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 you, you can legit make an argument that it's the best most important festival on the planet you know if if not you know it, it can in in france the Cannes film festival um but they're just heads and shoulders above everything else mm-hmm. and it's it's wonderful to be there because it's there's so much going on, and you're seeing all these fantastic films. Um, one of the interesting things about film, as opposed to you know many other art forms like like that are have a more live component, is that you know, filmmaking can oftentimes be very um, solitary. It's also very long. It's a process. You know, films can take months, if not years, to complete. A lot of that work is done in small spaces like we're in right now, you know, a sound mixing studio, a editing studio, whatever. Um, and then when they're released to the world, you know, unlike a play or a, a performance, a musical performance or a dance or something, you know, th- there isn't that direct opportunity for the artists and the audience to have that mm-hmm. connection 
to have that in-life person connection. Um, and Sundance and a lot of these other film festivals provide that opportunity where it, it's a, the, the, the premiere of some big film that people have been anticipating. But it also is this opportunity for the filmmakers to kind of take a bow, um, to have that opportunity of like coming together and be like, hey, we did it. We've been working on this forever. Here it is. Let's party sort of thing. Or maybe, you know, maybe not party, but you know what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, it's um, just this, this really neat opportunity to not only see brand new cutting edge work, um, but to be a part of these this, this energy that, you know, even if even if it's a film that, you know, like, oh, I have a chance to watch this. You know, this will be in the playing at the Magic Lantern in a couple months or in, on Netflix in a f- few months after that. Like, you still want to go see them because it's just there's this, this energy there that's unlike anything else. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, though, there, you know, a lot of these films are oftentimes pretty intense films, very, very, uh, very important films. And, and especially with a lot of the documentaries and with some of these ones, a, a film I saw, you know, boy, it must have been probably 14 years ago at Sundance, was this film called Tarnation, a filmmaker. About the young teenager? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it got out there, got into the world. So, um, you know, if for your listeners who aren't familiar with this film, it, it's a movie, it's very autobiographical. Most of it was made, the filmmaker didn't realize he was making this film. He started, he got a video camera when he was like 10. He kind of, video, you know, recorded everything. Also was you know kind of always like setting up the camera and recording himself doing these performances and stuff, but the kid also had just this super traumatic life, all the stuff going on. It's very uh, his his mother was going through all sorts of uh, various traumatic uh, episodes. It's a really you know, heart wrenching film, and, and 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 by no means a, a kind of a normal mainstream. I mean it's it's a you know, very artistic, very challenging. Um, so it, it had its world premiere at, at Sundance. I saw this, you know, some many years ago. And and you could just sense the audience when this movie ended. Everyone was like, wow, we have just seen something that's unlike any movie we've ever seen. And there was this energy. And then he was there and he was talking about it. And you could tell he was, like, had been terrified about this <laughs> movie showing. And then mm-hmm. now realizing, like, wow, these people love it. And and then what was even um, the, the most amazing part was as I was leaving the theater, he and he, he had a few friends, and they were on a phone, and I and I kind of walked past them close enough to hear he was on the phone with his mom, telling her how hmm. the screening went, and you know, and it's like I'm getting shivers down my mm-hmm. spine just just remembering this, this past time, this one just just last month, another film was like this, that uh, a film that I think that we're going to be hearing about pretty soon is a film called. Uh, the Church and the Fourth Estate. And it's about um, sexual abuse in the Boy Scouts. And in fact, I mean, the Boy Scouts just declared bankruptcy a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a a story that's, I think, going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as the, you know, the coming months uh, 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 unfold. You know, so this is a documentary about that. And it's very specifically about how, you know, this this one uh, young man who was abused, you know, quite uh, often as he was like 12, 13 years old, had reported it to all everyone. Everyone said, "No, don't worry, we'll take care of it." You know, hit it, blah blah blah. Finally, eventually, he went to the police, and then things happened. But even after that, then he was kind of shunned by the scouts, shunned by the Mormon Church. All had all this, you know, they really ruined his life in many ways. 
amazing film about about this, this young man and 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 his process. The film showed at Sundance. The filmmaker was there. He the, this boy now now a young now a young man now a young adult was there. His whole family was there. Oh jeez. And again, yeah, I mean, you could just sense. I mean, like like this the, this film coming out showing this was the first time this film had shown publicly. You could sense the process of healing going on with this family at this moment right here during this you know after the screening they, they are, they're all coming on stage talking question answer i mean again here i'm getting a little choked up just remembering this you know and it's just the sort of thing that like that's why sundance is special not only to to perform this to, to offer this platform for these films too to to be released to to get this recognition to to be seen by these larger audiences but for exactly that to happen too like like the, this kind of completion of the artistic process and even you know I, I i don't you know sundance is amazing but i all film festivals i mean we, you know we're kind of talking about this the spokane international film festival i'm not sure if we're going to have anything quite that intense mm-hmm. maybe we might you know but but back to you know back locally that's what's wonderful about film festivals you know sure you can say like oh yeah you know maybe some of this work isn't as strong as the stuff i could go down and see at the Magic Lantern or wherever, or um, maybe I can see it online or something like that. But there's, excuse me, there's something really exciting about seeing it when really no one else has yet seen it. Also, if the filmmakers are there, you can meet them, you can ask questions. There's just an energy of fun. It's a different, it's, it's going to a film festival is a different experience than just going to see a movie. Mm-hmm. They're they're very different. Well, and even as you're talking about that, it sounds like the curation of the film festival. I'll bet each one sort of develops its own personality in the sense of what Absolutely. stories do I want to tell, what yeah. sort of people do I want yeah. to be here. So it sounds like for you, Sundance, obviously it's a feather in your cap, but it was also something that was uh, you just would attend even if oh, you absolutely, had I'd go, to do I'd with go it. every year if I could afford it. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, all of the hotels in Park City have mm-hmm. figured out that everyone right. on the planet wants to go to Sundance, so they triple their right, rates right. that week. Right. That's, so, that's yeah. a bad side of it. So, Matt, you were talking as you were you know, relaying those two examples of the power of one kind of seeing this at a film festival and you know having that connection to the artists and, and those connected to that. Did you have a an experience like that or were you an avid film watcher as a growing up that got you started in this business what was there a catalyst that got you really passionate about what you do there there wasn't one thing but there was a, a series of things um i kind of really got my start in photography and even when i was a kid and like i was a photographer for my high school newspaper and kind of thought like that's what i wanted to go do um so that's what i went to study originally in college that's that same time though throughout college in my teenage years and early 20s i was also into bands and and playing music was something that was something that was like like if you had asked me you know hey well how is your next 20 years going to pan out when i was 20 i'd be like well music is my is Mm -hmm. my main thing um that didn't pan out but while i was you know that was in the early 90s and that was when the whole DIY punk thing was really up and happening and it, and it really kind of showcased this whole new way of, you know, through the eighties, there was just this sort of thought that like you had to move to LA and then hope that some one would discover you. And then, then you'd be big and famous, you know, and, but then no, actually 
you couldn't. You, you could do something totally different. You could move somewhere like Portland or Seattle and just, you know, go on tour with your band and play little venues and basement basement shows and put out your own records and make t-shirts and maybe you know some little record label will put your work out and I got really excited about that community so while as a musician I'd never really found a whole lot of success it it it, it, it opened my eyes to this community and so I was really interested in like well how maybe I can approach filmmaking and art making in this kind of way so Hmm. you know by that point i was making these short films and they were kind of you know weird and experimental and you know going to hollywood was not something that was really my that wasn't my intention that's why i moved to portland um and so i thought you know what why don't i approach filmmaking the way that these bands are doing their thing and do it very much in this sort of diy low budget don't wait for someone to come along and give you the keys to the car. Just, you know, if, if, if I have to drive a little jalopy, fine. I just, you know, let, let me at it. Um, and just started making work. Just started making my own films. And then also getting involved in the exhibition of stuff. Because I knew that, hey, I, I need to get my work out there. And there's other filmmakers. So if we all just sort of band together, then not only do we have a, a program and we have an audience, right? Because if each one of us brings a friend or two to the screening, then we've got an audience. Um, you know, we're all making five to ten minute long movies. We can slough those together. And now we've got an hour and a half worth of content. And we started doing that. And it was really pretty successful. And so we kind of continued doing this. This is Portland mid-90s. Um, shows got more attention. Uh, the filmmakers, we all started getting more attention. Next thing you know, we're showing at Sundance or, you know, getting big grants and doing stuff that's, you know, really putting us on the map. Um, and so then, then that's really when things did kind of start taking off for me. And then that led you to starting a production company, correct? Yeah, I mean, that was only for my own work. Oh. And then I'd also sometimes do music videos. You know, there's also just a great amount of uh, bands in, in, you know, in the Northwest. So I was doing music videos for them, um, which was always fun. And also just another way to kind of connect and and explore the craft of filmmaking. Well, I saw you've worked with the Shins and Slater Kinney and yeah. all those bands. Are you still making videos for Not so much. Um it's it's just it's a hard, it's a lot of work and and unfortunately music videos are one of these things where you used to actually be able to make a little bit of money mm. making music videos. Um but nowadays mm. the budgets have kind of just come down so much that you know, it's like a passion project. And, uh, you know, I, I would certainly consider it at this point. But also now, you know, I teach. Uh, I'm doing other things that are taking up enough of my time to I have to be a little bit more. I have to curate my time a little more closely. So that um, takes me to you You lived in Portland for quite a while and then recently moved to Spokane, got a job at Gonzaga University. What was that all about? Did you just decide you wanted to teach, or um, this was, I mean, that's quite a move. Yeah, no, well, so um, I was kind of, sort of making it as an artist and filmmaker independently. Not well, not, you know, it was never well off, but I was, I was, I was getting by, right? I was getting by. Um, but also kind of new, especially when the uh, economy tanked back in 2008, also knew like, wow, this is, you know, I need to be careful here because it's, it's one thing to be, 
in your 30s and broke and have a bunch of roommates and stuff. But you know that doesn't age well, right? You don't want to <laughs> be in that same boat when you're in your 60s. Sooner or later, you want to have your own place and be able to afford to go to the doctor when you're sick. <laughs> <laughs> Fancy things like that. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I was kind of looking and I would do some advertising and this and that, you know. But that was right when Portland State University was starting a film program and they needed teachers. And they actually approached me and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in coming and teaching a class or two? And um, at first I thought that sounds like fun. I don't really have the experience. We're like, oh, you'll be fine. Come do it. And I did, and I loved it. I, it was just really rewarding. And um, it was, I, 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 I kind of realized I'm, I, I, it seems like I'm good at this. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, it's fun, and I'm learning, and the students are learning. Seems really productive and positive. Um, felt better than the advertising I worked, a- advertising work that I was doing. And that was, that was good in some ways. But I, at the end of the day, I never went home and said, like, I feel like a good person because I'm hoping to sell Levi's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so I started teaching more and more. And then next thing you know, by 2014, I was teaching full time in Portland at Portland state and, and things loved it. It was great. Um, but I was kind of paying attention, you know, Portland's really changed over the past 20 some years and changed in ways that I wasn't wild about. So, you know, I would kind of see Portland changing and, and getting more expensive and getting less interesting and just having these changes that were things that I was not really happy about. Kind of looking around, too, and kind of, you know, always just kind of keeping my eyes open for things. And I saw, and I'd, I'd been to Spokane a couple of times. In fact, my friend Avalon, who I told you about earlier, mm-hmm. I, had, I was driving uh, on a road trip out. My dad lives in Montana, so I was driving from Portland to Montana. I stopped in Spokane to, to kind of to see Avalon and hang out with him a bit and then make my way on to, to Montana. And we were, I don't even quite remember where we were at, but we, we went out for breakfast one morning. We had a beautiful day. It was somewhere over in Kindle Yards, I think. I think they had just finished that. And um, sitting on like a patio overlooking the, the, the gorge there. And it was sunny and nice. And there were all these, you know, active people around completely not my like previously held <laughs> vision of what Spokane was right I mean I've stopped it I've lived in the Pacific Northwest for over 25 years and I've stopped in Spokane many times um but like you know the Kino Yard thing was different and not that I even like loved it but it was just kind of rocking my um, you know I was realizing that my concept of Spokane was way off and, you know, I was talking to, to, to Avalon and his wife, and they were telling me about it. They're just loving it. And you know, there's other people coming from Portland and Seattle, people who were kind of getting priced out of those cities. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, yeah, it's too bad there's not a college in Spokane that has a <laughs> film program. <laughs> and, uh, and then literally, I think it wasn't more than six months later, I'm just kind of perusing the the various academic websites that have job listings and i see gonzaga's looking for a documentary filmmaker i'm like well that's interesting <laughs> and then so i just applied kind of thinking like well who knows what will happen you never know might as well you know throw your hat in the ring and then they offered me the job and i decided to take it and oh, here yeah. i am that's so. that's a great story. Well, speaking of teaching, uh, for the first time ever, you have students who have a film that's showing along with you, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been now teaching for almost 10 years. 
Um, and, I've, and I've had students in my classes make projects that have gone on to find success and show at some film festivals. Um, but this time around is particularly exciting because so last year in, in one of my classes at Gonzaga, a couple of my students made this film about um, T.J. Sneva, who's a local Spokane skier and inventor. And back in the 90s, he was one of the early uh, innovators of what are called twin-tipped skis. These are skis that have the the front and the back mm. curve up. So it allows the skier to ski backwards. Mm. And this was during a time when skiing was kind of becoming a dinosaur because all the kids wanted to snowboard. And he he developed these skis that suddenly became really popular with those exact kids because you could do tricks with, with these skis that you couldn't with other types of skis. And just as he was kind of starting to kind of get these out and, and known, um, a very large uh, corporate ski manufacturer actually approached him and said, hey, we'd love to talk to you about your skis. And they kind of came and talked to him and looked at everything. And then they uh, said, you know, we, we, we should we, we would love to work with you. And he's like, okay, let, you know, let me think about it. And he's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. They're like, oh, actually, no, never mind. And then so they just went and released their own twin tip skis, essentially stole his idea. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were kind of fronting him. And so, so, so students of mine who are also, you know, skiers and, and, and hip to the story made this fantastic little, I think, 12-minute documentary about it. This was in my class this past spring. And I knew, I was like, hey, this is really good, guys. You need to send this out to some film festivals. And sure enough, it got accepted to the Spokane International Film Festival and is showing in the same program that my short film is showing in tomorrow mm-hmm. night. So this will be fun. This will be the awesome. first time that I've had a film showing in a program alongside a film made by some students of mine. So it'll be, mm-hmm. I'm honestly more excited for them <laughs> than, for, you know, I've done this enough times now, this, but for, I'm excited for them. I'm like, you know, proud papa, right, you know. So that, that you know, we're both educators as well. Um, what would be, if we were to talk to some of your former students that you had, either at Portland now and here at Gonzaga, Five ten years from now, what would they say about Matt McCormick? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully, some nice things. Um, I I get the sense that they would say some good things. Hopefully, um, if there's a fear that I have, it would be that they would be broke filmmakers and be like, "Matt, this is all your fault." <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be a fear, but at the same time, some of my students are, are doing quite well. Uh, a few of them are off to graduate school. Some of them are making fantastic films. And I think at the end, you know, teaching film is a is an interesting conundrum because it's something that's very difficult to make a living doing. Um, you can take these skills and transfer them mm. to, to, to jobs, and that's what most right. of them do. Um, but as far as like I'm going to be a filmmaker and make a living off this, that's that's. I mean, I, I I'm teaching because I couldn't actually. I mean, I love teaching, but much of it is motivated by the fact that I couldn't really sustain a, a living by just being a filmmaker. So that's that's the tricky part. So so my my fear is that like you know I'm guiding them down a a, a dead end trail, but at the same time I'm also hoping that. What's fantastic about filmmaking is it really is a process that just involves a lot of figuring things out as you go. It is problem after problem after problem, all of which have to be solved creatively. 
So my feeling is, is that if you can successfully make a film, even if the film itself doesn't really accomplish much once it's complete, mm -hmm. if you can just do that, then you are developing some, a skill set that can transfer to other things because it's, it's so much like I think nowadays we don't even know what's going to be going on five years from now. Anything, even, even if, if there's continuing to make films and working in the film industry, the, the technology 10 years from now is going to be so different that everything that I'm teaching them is going to be woefully outdated. So what the, the real secret is, mm -hmm. is not like here, here, get, a, get become an expert at this, mm -hmm. but it's like teach yourself how to figure out how to get through these problems and complete something, complete something, teach yourself the new mm -hmm. skill that you need to complete it and see it all the way through. That's, yeah. that's the real skill. And that to do developing. that creatively. I think that's such a great lesson in and of itself for future because you have to be critical thinkers and to do that in a creative way. It's one of the hardest things the students deal with, right? It's like I, I can teach them how to use the software and how to use the camera, and, and they kind of get that stuff really quickly. The stuff that really is the kind of stopping your tracks, like, whoops, how, what, how do I do this, mm -hmm. is when I, they have to make a creative decision and there's not a right answer. I can't, I can't tell them, okay, here's the right answer. It's like you've got to decide this for yourself. That's that's the that's the real challenge, but also kind of where the magic happens. Yeah, it is. So tell us how uh, people can see your film tomorrow. Where, well, when? Uh, so it's at. A, I think. I, I mean, I would go visit the Spokane International Film Festival's website. Um, I think it's tomorrow, 7 p.m. at the Garland Theater hmm. is the opening night of the film festival. That's when this this program is showing. Um, and then, but the festival goes for a week. Right with uh, different venues. I know a lot of stuff is happening at the Magic Lantern. Right on. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. And, My pleasure. Uh, Thank you for I, having me. I hope you have an enjoyable time tomorrow night. Thank Fascinating, you. Matt. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you.